What I want to read for you now is one of the most intriguing, exciting, possibly disturbing, and ignored passages about Jesus Christ in all the Bible. If last week we saw that Jesus calls us to come with him into battle, this week we will see why we can come. It's because he is infinitely, immeasurably powerful. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. This is John speaking. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, now as we digest this portion of your scripture, Lord, I hold on to the promise offered in Psalm 119, the prayer that says, Incline our hearts to your testimonies, O Lord, and not to selfish gain. This morning, Lord, I need my heart to be inclined to you. We need our hearts to be disinclined from all the lesser matters of the world and to be focused and inclined toward you. So Lord, would you do the work now that only you can do and incline our heart to your testimony, to your word, even a disturbing, possibly disturbing portion of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Several years ago, uh, a movie came out. It was a remake of a movie from the 70s. Uh, Some of you probably saw one or the other, maybe both. Uh, It's called Stepford Wives, and uh, it's a very interesting movie. It's about a couple that moved to this place called Stepford, Connecticut, and what they noticed immediately is that uh, the women in this community, the wives, are absolutely perfect, at least from the the man's standpoint. I mean, they, they look beautiful. They're always smiling. They're always dressed to the nines. They never nag, they never complain, they never disagree with their husbands. They're always there willing and ready to do anything their husband asks, to serve him uh, in any way. And what you begin to find out, these people are disturbed as they see this, but what you begin to find out is that uh, these are not real people. There is no relationship. In fact, there's, there, the women have become, have been made into robots. Now think that if we are not careful, what we can in times do is not have not create Stepford wives, but create a Stepford Jesus, a Jesus of our own desires. We talked last week about not wanting to tame or domesticate Jesus, 
And this passage will cure us from that very quickly. Because we need to have a full-orbed Christology, a full picture of who Jesus is if we are going to see him in the right way. We very often see Jesus, we, we focus almost to the extreme on Jesus as tender and mild and merciful and the baby-rocking Jesus and compassionate Jesus, and all those are true. We often see pictures. When we see pictures of Jesus, what do we see? We see this picture. This, I call this, uh, th- this is, you see this picture, you get the impression that Jesus spends most of his time developing the first and only lamb-snuggling ministry in, in the world. Or you see the next picture that's, that's going to come up. And if, when, Jesus, when I see this picture, I think, you know, if Jesus isn't spending time snuggling lambs, he's probably doing his hair or lengthening his, his eyelashes. Because uh, you see, this is perfect. You know, I call this Pantene Pro-V Jesus because he has these perfect flowing locks. He's obviously spent a lot of time uh, in, in the mirror. And so we can say, yes, Jesus is merciful. Yes, he is tender. Yes, he is compassionate. Yes, he is meek and loving. But he is also vast and big and powerful and, in a way, terrifying and powerful. Yes, he is a lamb, but he is also a lion. When is, when is the last time that you picture Jesus, maybe like the next two pictures, like this? It's a representation of the passage we just read. Or like the next picture. When's the last time you had a picture like that of Jesus? When's the last time your kid brought home a a Sunday school picture of Jesus that looks something like that? That would probably disturb you if they did. But without this picture, without this picture of Jesus, we will lose something deep and personal and meaningful about the person of Christ because this is exactly the picture that John is giving us in Revelation 19 except for he is giving it actually in, a much, in much more graphic terms. And so whatever we do, this passage will keep us from having in our minds a Stepford Jesus, a Jesus who is really only of our own making. Now, when Jesus... When John begins this vision, what does he say? The very first thing he says is, heaven was opened. That really didn't even strike me until about 11 o'clock last night. But there's only a few places in all of Scripture where the, the Word of God says that heaven is open and we get to peer inside as to what would actually be happening there. So in other words, God is saying, I'm going to open heaven for you just for a brief moment. And if I could open heaven and show you one thing, it would be this. And then we get this picture. What do we see? Verse 11 and 12. John says, He saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. John begins to paint this scene and Honestly, Revelation, I think, is best read with your eyes closed. You begin to imagine what he is talking about here. He begins to paint this scene of a vast battlefields, armies arrayed across it, banners flying in the wind, tensions mounting because war is imminent. And as John looks out across this battlefield, what he begins to see is that there is one warrior, one person who stands out among all the others. He's riding a white horse, a purebred, beautiful, strong, white horse. 
White horses symbolize victory and power and conquering. And the one sitting on the horse, his name is faithful and true, and he has eyes that are blazing like fire, representing his holiness, his purity, his power. And he has on his head many diadems, many crowns, as it were, representing infinite authority, infinite power. What we see is a powerful warrior doing battle with the forces of evil. It's almost like a scene from the Lord of the Rings. And we wonder, should we, should we tremble in place? Should we run away or should we fall in worship? That is the picture of Jesus that is being described. Pastor Mark Driscoll is a pastor in Seattle. He puts this in even starker terms. He says this, quotes on the screen for you. He says, in Revelation 19, 11 to 16, Jesus is not revealed as a glass-jawed hippie wearing a dress. Rather, he is an ultimate fighter, warrior king with a tattoo down his leg who rides into battle against Satan, sin, and death on a trusty horse. If we were to see Jesus today, we would see him in glory, not in humility. We would see a Jesus who will never take a beating again but is coming again to open a can on the unrepentant until their blood flows upon the earth like grapes crushed in the violence of a wine press. Now those are stark terms. But when we begin to see that, we begin to see that Jesus is not just a lamb snuggler anymore. We begin to see that we can no longer, that we must take Jesus seriously now. We must take him seriously. If this is a picture of who he is, no longer can he simply be uh, a pal or the big guy in the sky or the man upstairs or our co-pilot. No longer can he simply be a genie in a bottle or a step for Jesus, but he is to be revered and feared and worshipped. We see a passage like this, there should be hushed silence. There should be awe. There should be reverence for the person of Christ. John Piper says this about reverence. He says, there are many affections that you can feel for a little God, but reverence is not one of them. Reverence is the combination of admiration and fear, awe and dread, wonder and terror. It's an emotion we were made to experience. And in its absence, we create motion pictures and take vacations, which do their best to provide a substitute. We long to be awestruck. We long for some friendly terror and for some joyful dread. And the only way we ever experience this is is to know the Lord as God Almighty, the Omnipotent. Now, another reason that Jesus begins to stand out here is because of what he's wearing and who he's with. Look at verses 13 and 14. Suddenly, he, John takes time to tell us what Jesus is wearing. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. It says here that Jesus' robe is dipped in blood, and, and the question is, is it his blood or is it the blood of his enemies? And I believe for a number of reasons it's, it's his blood because the battle has not yet taken place. It's before the battle. Jesus comes, and it says his robe has already been dipped in blood, and therefore Jesus comes to the battlefield wearing a picture of his own blood. 
He comes in that way. And I, I wrote down, I wrote down 10 reasons why I think this is important, but I'm going to give you just one. I think the main reasons this is important is because it shows us that Jesus wore red so that we could wear white. You see behind him, what, what is behind him? The armies of heaven arrayed in white linen, pure and fine clothing. Jesus wore red so that we could wear white. He got dirty so that we could be clean. He made war so that we could have peace. Jesus will eternally wear red so that we can eternally wear white. Listen, you might be saying, you might be thinking right now, I just, look, I want a God who's just loving and tender and kind. I don't want to hear about this kind of God that has this kind of power and it has eyes flaming like fire and going to be riding out on the battlefield with a sword in his mouth. I really can't handle that. You might be thinking, I just want a nice, gentle Jesus. Can you just give me that? We have that. We focus on that all the time. That is absolutely true. But if that's all we have, then we have nothing but a Stepford Jesus. We need to know the power of Christ. You need to know that Jesus fights for you. Notice in the passage, what, what, what is, what is the, the armies of Christ, what are they armed with? Nothing. They're completely unarmed. Jesus comes to the battlefield with an army that has no weaponry. They're simply wearing white robes. That doesn't do you any good in a battle. White clothing will not help you. It will only get dirty. Jesus, but Jesus brings this army to the battlefield with no weaponry. Now, this is one of two things. This is absolute stupidity or it is absolute power. It's one of the two. Either Jesus is an absolute fool or he's absolutely powerful. And for reasons we'll see in a minute, it is that he is absolutely powerful. So do you know that Jesus fights for you, that there is a place behind him that is secure? I, th- I thought of it like this. If you, if you were to stumble upon, if you were to be hiking in the woods and stumble upon a mama bear, and that mama bear in protection of her cub was roused to fight, it makes a huge difference whether you, which side of that, that power you're on, if you are her cub or if you are the intruder against her cub. It makes a huge difference. If you, are, if you are her cub, her power is exhilarating, and it is freeing, and it is courage building. And if you are the intruder, it is devastating, and it is fearful. How can you have the courage to face tomorrow? How can you have the courage to face whatever it is you're going to go into the world and face tomorrow? from your work to your health to your family, whatever it is. Isn't it that the fact that you have the opportunity to stand not against Jesus, but behind him, not against him, but but beneath him and under him and with his protection, isn't it the fact that he fights for us? Isn't it the fact that he is a bear, he is a lion who's going out before us? That is the only way to experience courage. 
That is the only way to feel like I can do anything is to know that I don't have to stand against him. I can stand behind him. And that is exactly what Jesus has said. He said, my robe is dipped in in red so that yours could be dipped in white. Saying today is not the day of war. Today is the day of amnesty. Today is the day where the king offers pardon. Today is the day where the king says, step behind the bear, not in front of the bear. And if we're behind the bear, we can do anything. We can have all courage. Listen, in the end, your security will not rest in. It will not be because of your money. It will not be because of your insurance. It will not be because of your health care. None of those reasons. It will be because you have sat in the shadow of unending, infinite power that is for you. Imagine the radical obedience and the infinite security of knowing that all of God's power is standing not against you, but for you. And Jesus also stands out because of what he's going to do with his power. And these, these are the most fearful, some of the most fearful verses to me in all the Bible. He says from, 15 and 16, from his mouth, Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God, of God the Almighty. And on his robe and his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This imagery is so striking. It puts a rod of iron in Jesus' hand, a sword proceeding from his mouth, the name on his thigh, a tattoo, as it were, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The most fearful thing here is that he says that he has come to tread the winepress of the wrath of the fury of the God of Almighty. It, it, the, the Greek construction even confused me because it, it just builds term upon term. It says the, 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 the tread the winepress of the wine, of the wrath, of the fury, of the God, of the Almighty. It's kind of the literal Greek. It just builds this into a huge picture of Jesus's power in judgment. And the fearful, terrifying thing is that the fearful concept to consider is that I could be one of those grapes in the wine press. And as I began to consider that, I remembered an illustration I heard another pastor use. And he said, he said this, if you go out into, if you go out into the night, in a clear night, and you look up in the sky, you will look up into the Milky Way galaxy. That's our galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy contains over 200 billion stars. It is 100,000 light years across and 2,000 light years wide. And our sun will take 220,000 years simply to make an orbit around it. And there are, scientists estimate there are 50 million more galaxies just like it in the universe. And then get this picture in your mind. In the beginning of time, God spoke. And that happened. God spoke words. And galaxies existed. So these words are not just terrifying because they talk of God's wrath. They're terrifying because he has power to back up his wrath. And I would think the biggest problem 
that we could ever face is that God would say, all of you are rebels against the king, and my wrath should be given to you. Wouldn't it be the best news in all of creation if that galaxy-creating power, if the word of God that speaks galaxies into existence were suddenly on a dime turned not against you, but for you. And it can be, because that is why, as we have said, Jesus comes with a robe dipped in blood. He would rather shed his own blood. He would rather take his own place in the wine press than make you take yours. Today is a day of amnesty. And you still might be saying, I really don't want to look at Jesus this way. I just want him to be nice and gentle and kind. But I'm going to say again, you need a God like this. You need a God who is powerful, even a God who is a judge. Because if you look out at the world and you look out at your life and you say something is not right in the world, there are problems in the world, then you need a God of justice. You need a God of judgment who will one day set it right, who will one day make it right. Because that's what God's judgment is. It's his settled anger at that which violates his peace. It is his power to recreate, his power to restore. That is what God's judgment is, and that is what God's judgment will do. Don't we need to know that God is angry at sin? Don't we need to know that God is angry at brokenness and death and disease? Don't we need to know that God is angry? We try to hide away from that all the time and say, we don't want to say anything about God's anger. But I think we need to say, you're darn right God is angry when he looks and sees his creation broken and destroyed and marred by death and disease and broken relationships and sin and all of these things. God's love and his justice are not opposites. In fact, Psalm 85 says they come together, they kiss each other, they meet together perfectly in the person of Christ because the opposite the opposite of love is not, is not justice, it's not judgment. The opposite of love is indifference. We often feel anger at those we love when they do things to destroy themselves, don't we? It's because we love them that we're angry that they're addicted to drugs and destroying their life or whatever it might be. Our anger comes out of a holy love for them. And that is the picture we get of God and his justice. That sounds silly to think this, but we need a God like this if we are to have peace in the world. Most of our culture will tell us we, we, we just have to have a nice, loving, non-coercive God if we're going to have peace in the world because that would just make everybody love each other. It's absolutely untrue. If we will have peace in the world and peace in our lives, we must have a God who will set things right in the end, who will take into account the misdeeds of history. Think about it. The most tyrannical, oppressive regimes ever in the history of the world have been those without God. Communist China, communist Russia, Nazi Germany, communist Cambodia under Pol Pot. Over 100 million people in those four regimes ruthlessly killed because people thought there is not a God who will judge me in the end. There, my actions will never be called to account. 
And so if we want peace and restoration, then we need a God of power. We need a God of infinite power who will actually come and judge. And this makes God the judge, not us. How do we face injustice in the world? How do we face the issues and people do us wrong? We can only do that if we have a powerful God, if Jesus is powerful. Why do I say that? Let me share a story from my own experience. Many years ago, several years ago, probably three or four years ago, there was, there was a man that I knew, a man that I respected, the man that I loved, a man that was my pastor, a man who was my mentor in ministry. I did my internship under him. Not only my pastor, my mentor, but he was my friend. I spent many, many days at his house. He had five kids. I hung out with all of them. I knew his wife well. I spent a lot of time at their house. When I came back to seminary, I called. We, we talked probably an hour every Saturday on the phone. He was a man that I respected, a man that I loved. And he became a man who betrayed me who stomped on that friendship, who walked away from that friendship, who even to this day will not receive a phone call from me. And as I dealt with that situation three years ago, I began to be bitter. Bitter against him, bitter against the church, bitter against God. And I began to feel, I would never say it aloud, but in my heart, and I I say this to my shame, I began to feel thoughts like, I would love to see him publicly publicly embarrassed. I would love to see his ministry fail. I would love to see his church fall apart. And I would love to see him exposed for who he is. Began to feel bitterness. I didn't even want to, that was the time I was applying for jobs. I didn't even want to apply for this job. I took my friends and my wife to convince me to apply for this job three years ago because I was bitter at injustice. I don't know who has wronged you in your life. I don't know who has wronged your kids. I don't know what coach has inadvertently cut your kid from the team or what teacher has taken a personal vendetta against your child or what person has abused you. I don't know who has wronged you. But what I know is that in the midst of injustice, I take comfort in a Jesus like this, one who will fight for me. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to fight. I don't have to make that pastor look bad. I don't have to make his ministry fail. I don't have to spend my time and energy against him because God does not need my imperfect justice I need his perfect justice 
And if God is like this, if he is infinitely powerful, then he can do that. And he can take care of those situations. He is a big boy. He is a bear. He is a lion. And he can fight for me. And he can fight for you. Doesn't mean everything will suddenly be all right tomorrow morning. But it means in the end, perfect justice will be done. And according to this passage, he will do it gloriously. And he will do it in a moment. Hit verse 19 and 20. I didn't read this yet, but this is the end of the battle. John says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. When I come to verse 19 and 20, I'm ready to see this battle take place now. It's the final battle, the greatest battle of all time. And I want to, I love military history, so I want to see the flanking maneuvers and, and all the strategy. And I want to see everything that happens the scraping, the clawing, the fighting. But actually, none of that happens. The whole battle takes place between verses 19 and 20. His power is so great, his authority is so great that he destroys the forces of evil with his words. With a word from Christ, death recedes. With a word from Jesus, pain and suffering and death flees. With a word from Jesus, the beast and all evil is captured and taken and thrown into the lake of fire. And Jesus says, when I come and execute perfect justice, there will be no more room for funerals, no more room for hospitals, no more room for orphanages, no more room for medical wards, no more room for collateral damage, no more room for brokenness and loneliness and despair and betrayal. For those things will have passed away because God is infinitely powerful to do it. It can only be done by a God that powerful. And so you and I are able to face tomorrow. You and I are able to have courage and confidence and security. You and I are able to look at our life and say, come what may, our God reigns. That was the confession of people, of God's people forever and ever. Not just something we look to, we look for God to reign one day, but the fact that he reigns now. Psalm 93.1, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. Psalm 96.10, say to the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalm 97.1, the, reign, the Lord reigns, let the people rejoice. Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. And so we can say, if we believe in a God of power, a God that not only loves us, but a God that is powerful for us, we can say, come what may, our God reigns. We could say, let our political candidate lose in November. Let, if, if the United States falls apart, if the stock market tumbles, if my health wanes, if my career falls apart, come what may, our God reigns. We could say, he sits enthroned in the heavens and he will rule until all of his enemies are his footstool. He comes riding like a white horse with eyes blazing like fire and the name faithful and true upon his coat. 
we can say, come what may, our God reigns. You and I can face tomorrow because he faced today. We can say, come what may, our God reigns because his power is unending. He comes to the battle with no weapon but his words. And death and hell and Satan flee from him. And so you and I can say, whatever happens in our lives, whatever you are going to walk out into tomorrow, come what may, our God reigns. If God is powerful, if God is not powerful, then he is nothing. But if he is powerful, then he is a rock. He is a refuge. He is a fort because he is infinitely and immeasurably powerful. Would you take refuge under his power? Let's pray.